Hello and welcome to episode 228 of the Game Audio Hour, a fortnightly podcast where we discuss all things game audio, from creative ideas to the latest techniques, project experiences to audio secrets. Here is where you'll find in-depth coverage and opinions related to game audio. I'm Alex May and I'm joined here together with, uh, no, not joined together with, that doesn't sound so good, does it? Uh, I am. No, it doesn't. No, I am. Uh, I am graced by the uh, gregarious presence of the one and only Michael Gordon Shapiro. How are you, Mike? So much better. Uh, doing great. Uh, doing lovely. How about yourself? <laughs> uh, yes, pretty good. We've been enjoying, uh, there's been a heat wave going through Europe, but actually fortunately here in Sweden, it's been uh, uh, quite comfortable, actually. Is it, is it pretty hot over there at the moment? It is, but Los Angeles always has the ameliorating factor of it being dry desert heat. So it's never as terrible as uh, in a more tropical or even uh, conventionally humid environment. Mm, that's good. Do you need to rely on air conditioning very much? Oh, yeah, like life support, without <laughs> question. <laughs> okay. But what do you do about uh, the noise from your air conditioner when you are like mixing or when you have, whenever you need to do anything that's kind of you know, fidelity critical. Do you turn your air conditioner off? Well, my studio is in a quasi freestanding structure. It was originally a car garage that was converted to an office space. So it doesn't actually have air conditioning. Some air conditioning spills in from the house because it's, you know, they're physically joined to each other. But I have a ceiling fan, which is rather quiet. And when I'm desperate, I'll put on another freestanding fan. And between the two of them, they manage to keep me functional most of the time. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, the, um, the ceiling fan, when I used to live in China, the, where it's extremely humid, the, the part of China that I lived in, the ceiling fan is, it, you, we gave thanks for the ceiling fan every day because, uh, when it's when it's really humid, all you need is the fan to kind of keep the air in the room moving, and then uh, you know it's actually you, you don't really need air conditioning. Unfortunately, in Japan, they don't really have ceiling fans because the the ceilings are quite low in Japan in general. So uh, yeah, bit of a bit of a uh, a hazard. Decapitation. That's right. Danger. Exactly. Exactly. Anyway, uh, let's discuss some game audio, shall we? I uh, wanted. Yeah, before we get into some um, topics that we prepared for today's episode, um, I was wondering whether there have been any interesting gear-related uh, uh, developments or any any new updates or new tools or anything that you've been checking out? Well, a minor update comes with Dorico version 4.2, which, like the usual single dot updates, you get some a few really cool features, usually nothing earth-shakingly earth different. But uh, what struck me about this update is that they redid their percussion editor. And um, I, I've only looked at the introductory video. But what strikes me is that it, it both exists as a notation interface and also a DAW-like uh, piano roll graphic mm. interface. Um, one of the big changes in Dorico 4 was they made it easier to have a combined view of notation and something that looks like what you'd expect to see in a sequencer. Previously, you could see both those things, but in different parts of the program. And here, there's a really, in 4.0, I think, and up, they uh, expanded the little convenience panel that pops up at the bottom of the screen to kind of peek over to the sequencer-like section of the software. So uh, you can see the same information in two different ways, and now it looks like they've approached the percussion editor. So you can really do sequencer-like, you know, DAW-like editing of MIDI data uh, alongside the more traditional notation view. And you can do things that you can't normally do in notation view, such as uh, edit velocities, or edit duration at a granularity that's more detailed than you know quarter note, et cetera. You know the the kind of blocky durations that traditional music notation affords. Uh, and you can you can see um, you know velocity maps, and you've got uh, automation. Well, what struck me about this and Dorico generally in recent updates is how there's this convergence of the functionality that's traditionally offered by a notation app. And that's that which is offered by DAWs with typically graphic views. And the, the 
the convergence is happening on both sides, typically, uh, where notation software tries to get more and more DAW-like and add MIDI editing and controller data. Uh, this tradition has is, is gone back you know, as far as you know, early Sibelius, where you could embed uh, CC data or program changes in your notation as a kind of invisible annotation. And um, Dorico is taking this to another level first with their very sequencer-like, I think it's called play mode, where you're, where you're looking at MIDI data and not notation. And now this merging of the two interfaces. So I think it's really interesting how we are approaching from two different angles, the, the dream. This has been my dream since the 90s, I will tell you, of having one app to you know, rule them all, where you can do notation and you can do MIDI editing, and it's great in both. Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit uh, bit confused there because like if I'm looking at Steinberg's lineup, you know I'm a um, regular user of Cubase. Cubase has notation as well, although it's you know somewhat primitive. Um, uh, I'm a little bit confused what the intention is here, because Dorico is intended to basically be a score writing tool, correct? Like that is its main function, and that is where the you know the the bulk of its power lies, right? That that was their f- that that was kind of the pitch, I think, behind Dorico One. You know, that was their their first point of entry. But please continue as you explain the confusion. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just sort of wondering, like, what the intention is. Like, are they? Does it feel like they're heading towards Dorico being basically on the same level as Cubase when it comes to its its sequencing power? And then, by the same token, does that mean that Cubase? eventually we'll start taking on more advanced engraving features to become more like Dorico, at which point, you know, you basically have, you know, like a uh, more or less an Adobe Illustrator versus Adobe Photoshop situation, <laughs> you know, right. where where both of these, you know, all of a sudden, because I've been using Illustrator since Illustrator 8, which is like, I don't know, whatever that is, 15 or 16 years ago. And I remember when they started to um, introduce more and more bitmap features into Illustrator, and then on the on the flip side of that as well, when Photoshop started to get you know vector paths and things like that, well, great, Photoshop can do vectors now, and Illustrator to a certain extent can do bitmaps now. So like, what's the point anymore? <laughs> Why not just call it Illashop and and be done with it? Uh, so it's curious whether or not I'm curious whether or not it seems like Steinberg is heading in the same direction of basically boosting up um, Dorico and Cubase with their you know respective uh, features from from the other other package and then of course there's Nuendo as well which you know where does that even fit into all of this it's a little confusing I'm not that familiar with Steinberg's storied lineup of overlapping audio software products um, in fact Dorico is the first Steinberg thing I think I've ever owned and I was really a Sibelius fanboy who was following the Dorico team to their new home so it really you know, they pulled me into the Steinberg world. Mm. But I think philosophically, the, the major sequencer-style DAW packages, you know, many of them are, are years old. And I think they started as MIDI or audio editors, and they said, hey, let's add a little bit of notation as well. Um, Logic's an interesting case where I think they were trying to squeeze as much notation as they could out of a MIDI editor paradigm way back. I mean, the very first versions of Logic were called notator logic, I that's believe. Right. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. now what was meant by notation back then was was you know worlds away from what we have today. But I think uh, logic always had that convergence at some extent. And as the software matured and changed hands and was taken over by Apple, I think the notation software aspect remained respectable for kind of a, an extra function, but was nowhere near as strong as what you'd get from the dedicated notation apps. Mm. So I would... Previously, I would use Logic for the occasional very simple notation task if I was doing, let's say, a, a queue in Logic and there was going to be one live musician, something like that. Then, you know, why not just try to save yourself the headache and integrate everything into one file? But as soon as Dorco came around, it became so easy to use notation software that I've, I've stopped even using Logic notation for that. So to actually answer your question, I don't know what Steinberg's intent is. I think um, Cubase has had some kind of notation, probably equivalent to Logic's supportive notation for a number of years. Dorico's this new thing, and they are probably exploring convergence. 
um, as they go. But I also think it's sort of like a fiefdom where Dorico really has its own concept. I mean, Dorico is using, um, what's the name for Steinberg's technology for articulation switching? Um, there's a specific name for it, and I forget what it is. Um, you're asking the wrong person. <laughs> expression maps? Is yeah, that that's it? it. That's it. Whatever. Yeah, expression maps. Yeah. Right. So Dorico uses Steinberg expression maps. They, um, I think they may not have fully implemented the spec, but you can see there's some technology sharing there. And that's great because you don't want to reinvent the wheel with something as utilitarian as a protocol for changing articulations. And that is something that both a DAW sequencer needs to do and a notation program needs to do. So that's that's cool. Um, I really like how they're sharing that technology. But I don't know if at some point you're going to be able to link up Cubase and Dorico in some intimate way where Dorico basically becomes the notation editor, you know, an alternative outboard but effortlessly synchronized notation editor for Cubase. Um, you know, so where you double click on a Cubase, I don't know what the terminology is, but let's say, let's call it a sequence. Um, you know, you double click on it, and by default, it goes to the own um, the the built-in notation editor. But if you have Dorico, it's smart about it and says, "Let's open up Dorico instead," and it saves you. You know, like the, the Dorico could just mind read uh, Cubase. I would be surprised if there wasn't some planning for something like this, even if it's just a post-it somewhere in Steinberg saying, to do, think about incorporating Dorico and Cubase. Um, to digress slightly, but I feel relevantly, you can incorporate Dorico into a DAW in various ways. You can um, you can have Dorico, if you're on a, I'll, I'll speak from a, a Mac point of view, but I'm sure this can be translated to uh, PC terms. But you can have Dorico pipe MIDI information to Logic. So that way, if all your instruments are set up in Logic and you just want to use Dorico as kind of a, a interface and have it have Logic do all the actual playback, you can do that without too much pain. Um, I've, I've experimented with it and I think it's really interesting. Um, what you can't do right now, per my research, is uh, drive Dorico from Logic. In other words, you can't do like a, a, a tight sync where Logic tells Dorico, start playing at this time code now, stop playing at this time code now, uh, where you could have a situation where like Logic was sending uh, like MIDI sync to Dorico, Dorico was sending MIDI notation back to Logic, and Logic was playing uh, from Dorico. Uh, all of this describes my dream entity, which is kind of Dorico as the notation editor and Logic or something like Logic as your traditional sequencer. Not quite there yet. I did find a third-party app that lets Dorico drive Logic, so you can kind of do it that way. But um, that's the state of the art right now. I would not be surprised if Cubase and Dorico do a mind meld in uh, a few years and we get something that's really cool that literally combines both both programs. Can you ever see yourself using Dorico as a creative tool? Sometimes I do. Um, All right. If I'm working on something for literal physical orchestra, human beings, uh, I tend to stay primarily in the notation world. Oh, okay. Because well, you know, other than you, you need your you need your MIDI mockup to sound good enough for whoever has hired you to write that piece, but you're not going to sit there agonizing over the realism of your MIDI mock-up oh, when you know that the stuff is going to the orchestra. So in those cases, I tend to work, I tend to use notation editors as the creative palette. Okay. Um, at least some of the time. I might bang out ideas on a sequencer for, for speed and convenience, but at some point I'm working in the notation software and Dorico contains the truth. So I will actually edit, I will play with ideas, I'll write counterpoint and, and work in the notation world. Mm. That's a very long answer to a simple question. So generally, if uh, whether or not you take the project to Dorico at all uh, just depends entirely on uh, basically if you're going to have a real musician uh, reading from it. And if you're not, uh, if basically you are the end, you know, your what you produce from your um, studio is the final end product, uh, then you won't even bother going to notation at all and you just uh, remain entirely within logic is is that uh, is that the way that you work? I will say that's mostly true. However, 
Um, there's another advantage to working in notation software, or let's just say working with notation, as opposed to the alternative, which is real-time performance into your DAW uh, through a keyboard, and then maybe, or maybe some work in a in a step editor or piano roll editor, um, and some editorial work after. But I compose differently when I'm working with notation. I the visual representation in the music influences my decisions and. Uh, it often, if I'm doing something contrapuntal, um, you know, where I, where I can't really effectively play multiple lines at the same time, sometimes I will actually prefer to go into the notation world as uh, as the as the primary medium, even if it's then just going to be imported back into Logic later. Mm. And that's if I'm doing something very fast and intricate. Um, you know, if you think of the lines you might delegate to a MIDI arpeggiator, you know, lots of fast jumping between chord factors and uh, stuff like that, really, really fast contrapuntal or um, just rhythmically dense stuff. Sometimes it helps to work in a non-real-time medium. And some people might enjoy doing that just using your piano roll editor and your, and your sequencer, but sometimes I like doing it in Dorico. Not often, but occasionally. And I would like to incorporate more of that into my work, even when there's no live musicians. So that's that's an aspiration for me. That's interesting, isn't it? Because that's actually pretty much 90% of the way that I work uh, is <laughs> entirely, um, like I'm, I'm rarely ever recording anything in just because I'm such a terrible keyboard player. So <laughs> so I play the QWERTY keyboard instead. <laughs> and uh, I mean, that's kind of the benefit of um, using a tracker as your main DAW. Uh, benefit and a drawback. You know, the the benefit is that you can do things. You can basically create music as fast as you can think, and you're not limited by your own physical uh, ability to play the keyboard. Because that's one thing I find that's quite different when I'm approaching music in something like Cubase versus Renoise. In Cubase, I feel like I'm always limited by my own actual ability to play the keyboard, which means the ideas that I come up with are all basically, they're only going to be as good as I can actually play with my own hands on a, on my MIDI controller. That's kind of the end of it. Just because, you know, pointing and clicking on a, on a piano roll, dragging out notes just isn't my thing. You know, I just don't really find it very, uh, you know, creatively engaging to be trying to write music that way. So, you know, most of the time I'll, I'll have an idea of the kind of sound that I want and I press play and I'll play along on the MIDI controller to the best of my actual ability, then record something and then go in and, you know, basically fix it all up. Whereas when I'm working in Renoise in a tracker, uh, I may kind of noodle around a little bit on the on the MIDI keyboard just to, to get some ideas. But when it comes to actually entering the notes, I'm never recording. It's always basically just typing stuff in, um, you know, the, the old school way. And of course, being uh, Renoise being such a, a modern and uh, um, wonderfully streamlined, refined incarnation of that whole paradigm, you know, it makes note entry very, very quick and efficient when you're using the QWERTY keyboard. So, yeah, I've always found that that's one of the most disappointing things working in music production for game audio as somebody who cannot play the keyboard very well. I'm always limited by my own ability. You know, when I worked on um, Space Folk City with Vince, uh, one of the, 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 the major things that I noticed is the difference between his music and my music was that his music is naturally, you know, far more virtuosic because he's such a good keyboard player. Whereas myself, I'm a bass player. I don't, I can kind of, you know, put chords together on a keyboard and I can play enough keyboard to make a melody. But when it comes to actually you know, improvising or doing anything textural like a keyboard player would, I, I just don't have that ability. So it, in my case, everything becomes very, you know, I, I guess clinical, which is which is all right in general for the the style of music that I that I specialize in. But uh, yeah, whenever I hear Vince's work and also the work uh, such as yours as well, and also the work of people who I who I know are um, have good skill with with piano and with the uh, with uh, the piano keyboard i always feel a sense of envy like wow it must be so nice to be 
you know, to, to not be limited by your own ability on the on the keyboard and just to be able to express these ideas on your native instrument through, you know, in, in music, just arranged in various ways. It, it feels like it would be a lot more fun than, uh, um, you know, basically having to imagine it and then enter it manually every time. There, I think there are definitely arguments for both methodologies or, or multiple methodologies. And it's a function of what kind of music are you writing? Uh, what are you most comfortable with and how your mind works? And I think, um, like, I would love to have an excuse to work in Tracker because at the dawn of my music creative life, I was doing things kind of like that, which were very, uh, you know, there wasn't a, a MIDI keyboard in sight and it was all very much kind of typing and um, uh, sort of what the ancestral um, event list editor kind of sequencers. And it's fun to be limited to a particular tool and just to see what you can do with those constraints. And I can't justify it unless I just want to have fun and you know and experiment a little bit. But um, the I would say that the the advantage of you know we can think of three different paradigms, and one is text representation of of music, and this I will I will lump in I will include renoise and trackers because my understanding is that's that's really what it is. It's a very efficient entry of of text that represents music, right? Um, then there's real-time improvisation on a keyboard, and then there's music notation. And music notation and text representation, I think, have a lot in common in that it's not real-time entry, typically. Yeah. And there's a, a kind of static... Um, it's like sculpture, right? You're looking at the static thing, and then you're, you're changing it at your own pace. Right. And the final product is almost fixed in time, in a way. Um, whereas when you're recording in real time, it's a series of performances. Right. And um, so you, you may, you know, as you uh, pointed out very correctly, you're limited to what, by what you can do in real time. And that lends itself to, I mean, the, the, the common paradigm, I think, for today's orchestral scoring is you've got your rhythmic ostinato in your left hand and your slow melody in your right hand. And that kind of corresponds to what people who don't play keyboards well will do. And I'm speaking as a member of that community. So I'm speaking with a certain amount of authority here. <laughs> um, when you have a static representation of music, um, notation and text representation, you can kind of get in there and do a lot of interesting detail work. Right. And you know, even if it's a matter of, you're, you're still listening, you're auditioning in real time, typically, unless you're a Beethovenian genius who can look at notation and then translate that in your head to a, a approximation of a performance. But uh, there's a kind of, a, I don't know, I edit more. I, I make things more interesting. I do a lot of more detail work when I have a non-real-time representation of the music. I, I think I've discussed this on the show before. Um, one interesting way that I think that text representation and notation do differ, even though I think they're cousins in a way, is that notation gives you a kind of visual analog for aspects of the music performance. Right. You know, if you see if you see a bunch of, of whole notes and there's a big slur over them or phrase markings, that sort of visually what music performance looks like in visual terms, right? right? That's kind of, yes, that's a string section playing legato, of course, a bunch of circles with long lines connecting them. <laughs> right. And... From what I remember of my my time working with kind of list based uh, notation, is that it's a little more abstract and cerebral, you know, because you don't have that analog quality, that that visual analog quality. You're, you're looking at text. Um, how do you feel about that generalization? Uh, I think I would disagree with that. I think only because um, I, I agree with your point that uh, notation. Obviously, you know, all of us, uh, or no, no, I shouldn't say all of us, but probably the majority of us here in game audio, you know, we we have backgrounds in reading notation as musicians of, of some kind. And when I say notation, it could be, you know, um, standard Western notation, but it also could be, you know, guitar tabs or things like that. You know, we, we sort of come from that. So we're, um, for the most part, most of us are comfortable and used to glancing at music notation and being able to sort of, to, to a certain degree, um, what's orally visualize in our, in our mind's ear, what's, what's happening here. Uh, with tracker notation, uh, if you are used to it, 
you know, I guess because I've been doing it this way for 30 years, when I look at tracker notation, I see it the same way. I also see it as, and I, I can imagine, okay, that's what this is happening. That's what this is doing. Uh, and all of the, um, uh, the different uh, uh, commands that we use to slide pitch or slide volume or reverse samples or to trigger sample offsets and all of these things that we do in in um, in trackers. Uh, once you are used to the notation, notation being basically the commands. So in the case of um, like for example, in the case of ProTracker, we know that C is volume and we know that A is a volume slide. Uh, and in in Renoise, that we know that. S is a sample offset, et cetera, et cetera. So once you get used to it, it, it's actually exactly the same, really, how you view the tracker listing compared to how you view um, uh, music notation. Actually, um, my my kids laugh at me. There's this fantastic app for iOS and probably Android too called Modizer. And Modizer is a classic sort of demo scene mod player. And one of the cool things that it does uh, aside from giving you instant immediate access to the online repositories of pretty much all demo scene music ever, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, it has a visualizer which basically shows you the, the tracker listing as it's playing it. And <laughs> my kids do, do laugh at me because I, I find it actually quite educational and quite fascinating to watch that and to read it as I'm listening to the music. <laughs> so, what are you doing, Daddy? Are you looking at those funny numbers and letters again? <laughs> it's like, yes, I am. I'm, I'm studying this music. <laughs> and I think that's also because I'm so used to viewing music that way that I'm actually able to read it like music notation, just like you would listen to, you know, you could listen to um, a string quartet play and you could read along with the score. And you could say, "Oh, that's very interesting. That's a that's a you know that's an interesting progression right there." It's the same kind of thing that I do with uh, with Modizer and its tracker listings. So I think that they're actually more or less the same. And I, I, obviously, it just depends on your comfort and the background that you have with using either you know tracker notation or music notation. But one thing I wanted to touch on that you mentioned there that. Um, you said uh, a little while ago that uh, you know a lot of interesting results can come from the limitations that are placed on us during through these kinds of production workflows. What's what I find really fascinating is for myself as somebody who really cannot play a piano keyboard with any degree of virtuosity or authenticity at all. Uh, I actually find it uh, when I'm working in Renoise. The, the music that I create is generally much more creative and generally much more free than when I'm working in Cubase. And I don't find it, I actually find the opposite. I find it much more limiting to be working in something like Cubase only because I don't like clicking clicking away on the piano roll. Uh, if, you know, if I was more comfortable with clicking on the piano roll, then this wouldn't be an issue. But, you know, generally when I look at Cubase, I think, okay, I have to play everything that I want to put into this piece of music. And then I feel this very, very strong limitation on uh, on my uh, ability as a keyboardist. So I think it really depends on what you're used to, but I definitely agree with that analogy between, you know, writing in music notation and write, writing a tracker listing or like a, a tracker pattern. Um, they're actually more or less identical, I think, in terms of what happens in your brain when you're actually doing that. That's very believable. Uh, I'll still argue that notation has the advantage of a visual analog to duration uh, in a way that I think text does not, unless the text representation in Renoise really has some visual elements that I'm I just don't know because I don't use the software. But um, the, the idea that if a you know a melody line is is visually longer, you know, in in the because it takes up more measures and measures are left to right, there's a there's a kind of correspondence between horizontal length and duration of time mm. uh, that does not exist. Like if you have, I assume if you have a single line of text in Renoise, you can say play C four for six years, and it's just a single line of text, and it's you know you could be six years or six minutes. It's not going to take up any more screen real estate. Um, depending the the duration won't change the visual representation. Is that is that more or less true? That's actually true. Yeah, because um, you uh, actually when I'm working with vocal uh, vocal 
samples in Renoise. Uh, often my son comes in and he he knows that that's how I work because he's you know he what he's watched me countless times writing music. But he he'll always say, "How do you know when something is playing in one of those channels? Because you you don't see anything in there. The vocal sample is triggered at the very top of the pattern, and then it plays." And it's it's playing in that channel, even though you don't see anything in the channel as it scrolls by, because the, the, it, all you need to do is trigger the start of the sample at the very top right. of the pattern. Um, various uh, other tracker programs have come up with, you know, you know, a few different ways to get around that. Some of them actually extend vertical lines down from notes, so you can see that okay, something is playing there because there's a vertical it's line still there. going, yeah. yeah. And then it only turns off when it when it receives an off command. Um, I I've tried those and I, I tend not to like that. I, it just sort of looks cluttered to me. Um, I guess at that point, you know, you basically just use your ears. But as you say, you know, that is uh, definitely one. Um, I don't know if we call it a strength, but it is one advantage that you have with uh, notation. That if you've got a very very long sustained held note like you know a few briefs that are all tied together over many many bars played on some amazing instrument that's actually able to do that um <laughs> uh then yeah you'll actually see that you know tied all the way across all those bars and you'll know okay there's a note playing there and you wouldn't know that in a tracker listing if you don't go back to the start and see what is triggered i think piano roll notation also has an even closer visual audio analog in representation because you know the duration of those bars is directly proportional to its duration and time right so here is something that feels even closer than notation to uh being kind of a one-to-one -one representation of pitch over time right right um one thing i noticed this is this is terribly nerdy um so i'll try to make it brief no promises, but I'll do my best. <laughs> when I'm working in notation software, I've developed a kind of shorthand using the keyboard that to me more directly connects the experience of writing music to how I imagine music unfolding in real time. So you talked about like not liking the piano roll paradigm because it's just a lot of clicking and dragging. Right. And I agree, that's a pain. What I do in, let's say Dorico, but this is true in Sibelius when I used to use that, is I will start by placing a note, uh, just some arbitrary pitch. And then I don't remember exactly what my key mappings are, but I'll just make up a few. So I'll, I'll then hit up and down arrows till I find the pitch I want. So you hit up arrow and you're watching the pitch ascend the staff, the note ascend the staff, and you're hearing it because every time you click on that up arrow, you hear whatever pitch you just incremented. And when I find it, um, I'll then hit some other note, uh, sorry, some other... I'll, I'll then hit something on the keyboard that makes it a certain duration. I think I have three is quarter note, counterintuitive okay. as that is. Right. Four is a half note. So you know, I inflate it or contract it to the desired duration. Then I hit R, which is the repeat command, and it'll make another note of the same duration at the next rhythmic insertion point. Oh, that's great. So if I, and then I'll do the same thing. I'll change that. I'll kind of sculpt it into the right duration, and then I'll move it with the up and down arrow key. So the effect. If you can imagine this done in succession, it's kind of like fumbling on a keyboard to find the pitch you want and then saying, yes, I want this one. And then you fumble on the keyboard some more and you find the next pitch. But because you're hearing each note as you audition it, my mind is able to assemble a melody um, through that auditory feedback. And it's, it's, it's all I'm doing physically is a bunch of keyboard commands and watching a note go up or down and fatten up or thin out and then duplicating it. But that methodology for me um, is very different from the constantly dragging something from the side of the screen to here and constantly clicking. Like I never use the mouse for this. Mm. And you learn other commands like start a tie here or in Dorico, you know, shift I if you want to add an interval so you can just thicken a note with a you know a third beneath it. Mm. It's turned into this kind of weird, sort of like playing the piano experience. And it it only works for me because of the flexibility of key command bindings. If I couldn't do that, it would all fall apart and it would feel just as awkward as clicking with a mouse or trackpad or whatever. Uh, but it, it's, it's a weird thing, but I really like it for at least melodic music. And um, 
I, I sometimes let the interface guide my creative choices that way. See, now that sounds exactly, exactly like the way that I make music all the time, basically in Renoise. You know, you're, you're essentially typing it in is what you're doing. And you're not, you know, constantly shifting over to the mouse, going, you know, over to the mouse and then back to the arrow keys and then back to the mouse and then back to the arrow keys. It's just, and it's it's certainly not uh, clicking and dragging notes in on a on a on a horizontal um, uh, piano roll. You're basically just typing it in, uh, and that's pretty much exactly what I'm doing uh, when I make music with Renoise. And that's another the reason why, um, because it's not in real time. Uh, it's so much easier to be creative that way because you can kind of think about things as you're going along and and obviously introduce a lot more intricacy and complexity to the music should you wish should you wish to and should that be what is uh, best for the music at that point but actually hearing you describe that process um actually makes me quite curious to pick up Dorico or at least the free version and to actually try that because I think it feels <laughs> from what you described to me it feels incredibly uh appealing and comfortable the idea of working that way and of course to do it on a a notational stave as well that would be you know for me an interesting novelty and and possibly um i guess if i ever wanted to, to try some uh to, to do some orchestral music that's probably the way that i would do it just exactly the way you described just now it is fun and it's idiosyncratic to each person dorico is very flexible about whether you specify the pitch first and then decide the rhythm or decide the rhythm first and then specify the pitch. I'm definitely a pitch first, then decide the rhythm kind of person. But um, you can work either way. There, there's a couple of different um, interface paradigms, and it's very flexible about letting you bind things to different key commands. Mm. Uh, so it's, I mean, I would use Dorico for things that had nothing to do with human beings playing music if it were just a little bit easier to... Again, if there was a, a dream merging of a DAW with Dorico or something like Dorico, where the two were completely uh, in sync with each other, and I could choose whether I wanted to do notation or to do real-time improvisation on a track-by-track -track basis. Uh, and specifically, I mean, I, you can do that with Logic or Cubase, but notation in Logic is really clumsy, mm. and I assume Cubase is probably similar. But if I had that kind of mind-meld Dorico visual auditory blending of modalities and then i could also plug it into a daw for all the things daws are good at that would be my dream mm. and i can only hope that it happens during my lifetime and then, like the last five years of my life i can have a really good time writing music this way well steinberg if you're listening you have a chance now to uh to make one man extreme <laughs> extremely happy <laughs> exactly <laughs> get on it um Actually, uh, just winding back a bit and moving on from um, the uh, this discussion of these tools, um, it's an interesting segue into something else that would, uh, we were planning to talk about in today's show. Uh, and that is, I think, the overall workflow when it comes to uh, approaching the construction of music um, for, uh, for game audio. Um, you know, you, we were talking earlier about how... Uh, if you know at the end of it that you're not going to have an ensemble playing your your piece, then you know potentially you may not choose to start off in Dorico, and you may uh, work in Logic so that you can uh, target that um, uh, realism in the production uh, with all of the you know the uh, sampled orchestras and libraries that you use. Uh, so that could be one decision that you make at the beginning of a project before you even sit down to to think of anything musical. But in terms of process through that early stage of music production for a, a game audio application, are there other things that you ritualistically do uh, to prepare yourself for the, um, uh, you know, for the project? Well, it's a, it's a broad question, and there are ways you can think about answering that, both in terms of your technical setup and your creative process. Um, but if we if we think about the creative process, I think for me the you know the phases are um, conceptualization of the musical vocabulary and style of a project as a as a starting point. Um, you know this is this is scoring one hundred and one. I'm sure most composers who work in media have some version of this process. But mm. step one is you typically you're, you're talking with the person who's giving you orders, and uh, be it a creative director or or a film director or uh, a team lead in a game company. And you're 
pitching an idea. You know, maybe it's um, traditional orchestra or hybridization of orchestra and contemporary elements, and people are referring to existing scores and temp tracks, and you you finally come upon like a handshake verbal agreement of what the style is going to be, with the understanding that um, no plan survives, no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy, and uh, in the process of writing the score, you might find that what you thought you wanted is actually different from what works. Mm. Um, but um, so I'll, I'll give a brief example from my own work. When I was working on the game Dice Legacy, um, we talked about having Northern European folk influences in the score because the the visualization of the world uh, looked like a Scandinavian villagers. You know, there was architectural design influence from that area. The characters had a little bit of a kind of Northern European look to them. So that's where we came up with the idea of drawing in some folk elements and adding them to the orchestra, uh, ultimately adding a Swedish nickel harpa as a kind of a folk uh, signature sound for the score. So that's, for me, that's the early phase of the process. How does that resonate with your own experiences? Um, my situation is is somewhat unusual, and and I have to say I'm you know very privileged um, in that uh, I am the audio person, and I'm also the producer and the director for all the same company. <laughs> so I, I guess I kind of have um, complete control over the musical direction, and I am my own client to a certain degree. So mm. the early stages of our projects, basically, it's myself talking with our lead artist, Therese. And um, as I've, I think I've said before, uh, she is fantastic to work with because whilst she doesn't have formal musical education, she has an incredibly sophisticated and purely emotional appreciation of music, which means that, you know, she will feel things when she hears music. She won't be able to really explain why certain music makes her feel a certain way, but she'll be able to articulate very accurately, oh, you know, this sounds tense, or this sounds, uh, you know, happy and whimsical, or this sounds funky and groovy, or, you know, uh, she'll be able to use much more sophisticated adjectives than that as well to, to express the emotions that are coming through with music, which is incredibly useful as a, myself, uh, somewhat overly technically minded music producer, it's easy to forget that, you know, that from the point of view of somebody who doesn't have, um, I guess we could call it the baggage of, you know, uh, the, the technical um, understanding, musically technical, and also, uh, you know, from an audio engineering point of view, we're, we're very much weighed down by all of that. And it's easy to to forget the importance of just just opening your heart to the music and letting it pull you in in certain emotional directions. So normally at our, with our projects, it will start off with discussions between her and I, and we'll look over the concept art that she's been doing for the project. And I'll then normally go away and do a lot of research. And research is a lot of fun because it just means a lot of listening. <laughs> and as as we know, as uh, game audio professionals, it's a rare privilege to be able to listen to other people's music <laughs> instead of sitting there being trapped in listening to your own music all day, every day. Uh, it's a wonderful thing to, you know, just go out there and explore, uh, just go on a sort of a musicological journey and just just let it let let it pull you through into interesting, unusual directions. Uh, and then I'll I'll find usually. Um, uh, sort of a few, I'll get together a collection of maybe, f you know, four or five different variations of other people's music to play to Therese and say, what do you think of this kind of feel? Or what do you think of that? And she'll give me very, very um, uh, useful and uh, informative emotional guidance. It's like, oh, that feels a little bit too dark for what I want for the art for this. Or, you know, this is good, but maybe something a little bit more subtle, less obvious or you know things like that um uh, we often also talk about the the use the intentional use of stereotype and cliche you know if if we are making you know a, a science fiction uh spaceship game um there are certain specific kind of stereotypes and cliched cues that people will expect when they play a game that's set in space and intentionally 
capitalizing that or intentionally avoiding that are also two useful tools that we'll we'll discuss. So all of this is the kind of discussion that happens in um, you know that early pre-production phase, I guess. So yeah, and I guess I'm I'm very fortunate because after that point, when I decide, okay, we're going to do this, um, then you know it's usually at that point that uh, I've made that decision, uh, having consulted Therese in in thorough detail you know, rigorously about the the kind of artistic direction that she wants. And so at that point, you know, she she basically, you know, thankfully uh, trusts me to be making the right decision for the kind of style of music we want. And yeah, and from that point on, uh, it just gets into uh, uh, production. So I guess I'm very, very lucky. I think what you've managed, what you're describing is a best of all worlds scenario because you have creative autonomy Um but you also have a collaborator and someone uh, off of whom to bounce ideas and uh, an outside set of opinions or an opinion that you respect. And I think the best, uh, the best of the traditional collaborative relationships where a composer is working for somebody who at some level ultimately has authority feel like what you've described, where it feels like two partners putting their heads together and combining forces to come up with the best possible score. Mm. And um, as you've described it, that's what you have. And that sounds like a great um, collaborative relationship. Yeah, I think it's um, uh, as when you are a freelance uh, composer such as yourself, you know, those those opportunities when you have those kinds of projects where you're able to really talk to somebody on kind of like an equal musical footing, maybe not necessarily technical, but at least with a sophisticated understanding of uh, the power of music and the impact and the effect of music. Um, as a freelancer, I know that that's you know when you're able when you're in the situation to be able to do that with your client, um, it's it's just so much more gratifying. You know, I, as a specific example, of course, you can probably see where I'm going with this. But when you and I worked together on uh, Cortopias down the rabbit hole, that was just a whole lot of fun being able to um, uh, you know really discuss with you. And head off into interesting musical directions, talking at quite a quite a sophisticated, advanced level of musicological understanding, but being able to say, "How about something like this?" or "How about something like that?" Um, uh, and I certainly had a great time in being able to uh, be that sounding board, literally <laughs> that sounding board for for the ideas that you were bringing to the to the table for that project. Yeah, you were my Therese in that particular <laughs> collaboration. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, no, that that was that was immensely fun and uh, and creatively um, engaging. You know, I really I felt like here's somebody I want to impress, but I am not living in fear of capricious opinions that will be thrown down from above. You know, I, I really respected your judgment, and it really did feel like we were teamed up uh, in pursuit of a common end, and that's what collaboration should be like. You know that's that's the ideal, the achievable ideal. It's an ideal that you really can get in reality if you're working with or for the right person. Yeah, um, the the opposite of that, of course, is can be incredibly stressful. I'm sure you know where where you're working with somebody who has, I you know potentially uh, a less well let's let's just say a less sophisticated understanding of the effect that music can have uh, or who somebody basically who really wants something that you don't want to do those kinds of situations must be very complicated to handle as well but i mean i guess that's the professionalism that you bring in those situations is uh, is is kind of basically the part of the the entire game of being a, a freelance music composer isn't it and I think as long as we're doing this survey of perhaps the the creative process across the lifespan of a project, I think it's worth thinking about this. I think there's a branching point for every project, and I'm going to describe it like it's an A, B, when in fact it's really a, a spectrum of possibilities. But at some point in the project, I think as composers, we decide, is this art or is this craft? Mm. And what I mean by that is, are we trying to do something original uh, that we think is at the forefront of creative expression, of doing something different but suitable? Are we putting in a lot of attention to doing something that's uh, interesting and doesn't just feel like stock music? 
Or are we really trying to stick to the tropes and do something very familiar that fulfills a set of technical requirements? Like, so if you're, if you're writing music for, if you're writing library music, for example, um, rightfully, you're probably going to be treating the project more like craft because you don't want to have um, like a, a jazz combo and then suddenly break into a bag, bag type choir uh, <laughs> unless you're deliberately trying to come up with something off the beaten path. You know, typically with library music, it's music that fulfills a particular purpose and is recognizable in a certain style. It's functional. Um, exactly. I mean, well, all media music is functional to some extent, but I think if you're working on a really interesting project or a, a game that has a narrative to it that is emotionally meaningful to the creators, and it's not just um, an iteration of a particular genre, there's also opportunities um, for artistic expression. And uh, you know, in, in film music, the same applies. You can have something where the score is really beautiful and interesting and listenable in its own right, and it has a kind of signature to it. Um, you know, I've always felt like Thomas Newman was my my one of the my favorite composers for bringing an original voice to tried and true dramatic situations in film. Um, and I feel like when you're given a good collaborative relationship where there's trust and autonomy, you think of the project as art, and meaning I'm going to do something that I would want to listen to on a on a, an album. I want to do something that advances the the, the frontier of what's being done in game music. Um, I want to contribute to this body of work of music in a way that offers something new and that is pleasing and appropriate for the project. And other times you may find that you're told to imitate a temp track or like you described earlier you may be given instructions you know hardcore instructions to do something that goes against your instincts mm. and i find that sometimes when the latter happens fortunately it's it's fairly rare for me um but occasionally you'll just be told to do this i want this thing um and you the hypothetical you the composer think oh this doesn't really work for me, but I know what the client is asking for, so I'll, I'll do that. And that's when you shift into the craftsmanship mindset. You know, you're saying, okay, deadline, project requirements, uh, parameters, let's, let's do this as best we can. But it's a very different mindset, I find, than when you're approaching a project and really taking artistic ownership of it. And it sounds to me like you're often in that more artistic mindset because you as the as the director have that autonomy. Yeah, um, I think it is important also, if you do get into the situation, um, the latter of those two examples that you gave just now, where basically you're being asked to basically whip up a stereotype or a cliche. Uh, I mean, a fine example would be, you know, let's say you're doing the music for a, a game trailer and the client says, you know, give me the, the war drums and the big, the, you know, the taiko drums and the, the big, the big brass. And, you know, we want the very, very cliched, stereotypical kind of, you know, game trailer music or movie trailer music. Um, uh, I think it's also probably a healthy thing to, um, even, even though artistically you may feel that it's a bit empty and it's a bit, it's, it's too utilitarian and it's just kind of boring you know why can't we do something more interesting why can't we push the envelope a little bit um i think also though it's important to recognize that that kind of uh craft centric not very artistic cliched work often as much as we probably don't want to admit it often is really what is needed in certain situations when you want to capture somebody's uh especially somebody who doesn't have as broad and a sophisticated understanding of music, you just want to grab them with something that they recognize. You know, uh, you, you play to the cliche, you play to the stereotype. Um, those kinds of situations can also be an opportunity to uh, um, not only perfect, as you were saying, that the craft of producing something that sounds legitimate and authentic and genuine as part of that cliche, but also you know for let's say for a large a large proportion of listeners who don't really care about the music that much they they don't notice it that much they just kind of want to have it there 
and have it feel satisfying in some way, but they don't really know or care why it sounds satisfying, you know, you're, you're pleasing those people too. And a fine example is, you know, as an example, when you're a bass player in a band, you know, yeah, you have the opportunity to go off and, and, and play very um, virtuosically and all over the fingerboard and just play, you know, crazy punk jazz stuff. Or you could just kind of play, play it conservative and just hold down the root note and, uh, you know, just play quarter notes and, and just sort of a solid, you know, utilitarian kind of bass line. And often, interestingly, you know, it's that solid utilitarian bass line in certain genres of music, of course, not all, uh, is sometimes the best thing for it because it allows everything else that's on top of it to really shine that much more clearly. And in the case of like a game trailer, you know, if, if you're giving it something that's fairly mundane, fairly like a standard routine game trailer, orchestral music, for example, um, that actually could sometimes be the best thing for it. If, if, the, if the producer has specifically asked for that, you don't know. Maybe they, they know this, that, you know, if you, if you try too hard to reinvent the wheel and to, you know, be all, you know, uh, to, to, to put it as, a, as an extreme, to be sort of elitist artist kind of approach, you know, that may be actually pulling away from what they really want the viewer to be noticing, which is the video game, you know, the, the visual. In this particular case, we want them to see the visual. They need to feel something, but we don't want them to be coming away thinking, like, what was that music? I really just didn't get that. And it's like, nice visuals, but I, I, like, I didn't understand that music. So maybe there's something to be appreciated as well in those boring assignments when people ask you to just pull off a cliché. And this is kind of why I said the art versus craft dichotomy is really a spectrum rather than a, a switch. Um, I think that sometimes what's fun is having these parameters. You know, we talked about in another um, conversational realm, we talked about it being kind of fun to work with limited parameters and avoiding what I think Stravinsky called the abyss of freedom. Mm. Um, if you're working in a style and then asking how interesting, what can I do within the constraints of this style? Um, like let's say you're doing the trailer music with lots of big drums and orchestral stabs and the the beat drops and all the, you know, the the standard accoutrements of this style, you could say, well, all right, I've got to have like these big drum rhythms, but what if I did a little bit of polyrhythm? Or what if I emphasize the offbeat a little bit? Like, see how you can nudge the expectations while still making something that's perfectly functional that will get the adrenaline running and make the trailer exciting in the way that we're all familiar with. But maybe there's a way to nudge, artistically nudge what's done. And that can be fun as well. Um, I, I think what's... Um, I, I guess I'm combining two things in a way when, when I'm talking about this art versus craft mindset. One aspect is what are the parameters of the style that you're writing in and how straitjacketed are you? you know, how constrained are you by what the project needs? And the other is how much autonomy do you have with respect to the person you're working with? Mm. And uh, if, you're, if, you're working, if you're doing a trailer where you're not trying to do anything shocking, but you have creative autonomy... I think then there's a kind of fun and trust, and that's when working in a in a well-defined style can still be artistically engaging because you know that you can play with it a little bit or just uh, put your ineffable musical signature on that in some way. But if you're working with a taskmaster who says, I want you to imitate this particular thing, and um, maybe they micromanage, maybe they're like uh, dictating certain details of the music um, in 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 great specificity, and especially if it rubs against your own instincts, I think that's when creatively you can shut down a little bit and just be like, it, it's a craft gig, I'm going to follow instructions, uh, deliver by the deadline, deliver professional grade production. You know, you can kind of disengage artistically. So it's almost a two-dimensional graft, right? There's the, the constraints of the style, and then there's artistic autonomy. And different positions in the graph can have different impact on you as a creative yeah person. and i think also if you are um if you have the benefit of having a mix of both of these uh, scenarios that's probably the healthiest because if you had too much of either uh it, it could get very exhausting you know sometimes i'm sure uh sometimes it's nice to have like a very clear cut do this <laughs> this is what we want make this <laughs> you know as opposed to uh um 
if you had that all the time, that would be very frustrating and creatively uh, very exhausting. Uh, no, not cre creatively frustrating, I should say. Um, uh, but, you know, if you have a balance of the two situations, that's probably ideal. I, I agree. Um, there is such a thing as having too many choices and there is such a thing as not having enough freedom to make a choice. Yeah. And there's there's a, a balance between being overwhelmed and feeling straightjacketed. Yeah. So uh, we're coming up to an hour. So before we finish, we are going to uh, do our customary conspicuous consumption. And this is where we uh, just check in with each other to see what kind of media, games, music we've been uh, recently conspicuously consuming. So uh, do you want to kick things off, Mike? What have, what have you been uh, getting into recently? Still not done with Elden Ring. Surprise. <laughs> Come on. Um, that's become <laughs> that's like sort of a very... <laughs> A very fun. I'm a slow gamer. I don't, you know, I, I'm very conservative. By the time I get to any boss in Elden Ring, I'm like twice the level you need to be to defeat him. So that I, you know, I've upped the odds in my favor. And the game is very accommodating of people like me. It does not. It lets you build. It lets you buff yourself up to whatever level of strength you need to, so that you can you can feel confident. Um, you can. It's almost like having an, a, an adjustable difficulty level. Uh, in a non-musical medium, I don't know if that's fair game for conspicuous cons consumption, but I'll, I'll mention it anyway mm. because that's what I've been doing. Uh, I've kind of dipped my toes into classical literature, and I've been reading Jane Eyre. Ah. And uh, it's unexpectedly – I was kind of girding myself up for the equivalent of raw vegetables, you know, something that was somehow <laughs> stimulating and um, – edifying and broadening, but was kind of a grind to get through. And to my surprise, I find this novel to be surprisingly delightful. It's uh, and, and emotionally mo moving as heck, much more than I anticipated. And uh, it's I've, I, my pitch to it for anyone who's only dimly aware of the book through literature requirements in school, I, I'm only 20% of the way through, but I would call it Harry Potter without magic. Okay. Wow. There's, there's a really weird parallel in a lot of ways. So yeah, uh, delightful so far. I'll, I'll give you an update as I get further into the book, but that's what I've been up to um, consumption-wise. Well, I mean, these are, yeah, these are classics for a reason, aren't they? Um, as for myself, uh, I've actually been playing Mass Effect. So I'd never played Mass Effect, any of them, before. And uh, huh. I picked up the Mass Effect uh, Legendary Edition, which was uh, released... Uh, some time ago now, maybe about six months or a bit more ago, um, which is basically like a, a remastered version of uh, Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3. So I'm kind of in the middle of Mass Effect uh, 1 at the moment. And uh, yeah, it's a quite a fascinating experience. You, you definitely need to uh, keep strongly in mind, as a first-time player of Mass Effect, you need to keep strongly in mind the historical context that this is 2007, uh, when this game was released and wow, was it that old yeah mass wow. effect is from 2007 and so you know that's quite important to remember when you're playing it to just to think of that the landscape of um of games and game interactions if you don't you know it's very easy to sort of look at mass effect and think wow this is kind of so cliched so, you know, so yeah yeah you know do a little bit of talking and then do some shooting and then walk over here and then do do some more talking with some dialogue choices and then upgrade your weapons and then walk over here and re rinse and repeat you know um however you know when you remind yourself that no actually there weren't that many games that did this at all in 2007 and mass effect broke ground in several areas of of this kind of gameplay that now we take for granted as being, you know, the standard fare for this genre, Mass Effect was one of the first titles to actually do these things, then it becomes much more um, uh, significant and you realize, wow, you know, this this is cool. You know, imagine in 2007 playing something like this for the first time, never having seen something like that works this way, like this before, you know that would have been quite interesting, and it's it's not hard to kind of imagine yourself in those shoes. So, yeah, it's uh, it's good. That does sound fun. I've I've played Mass Effect One, but not the rest of the series. I'll uh, have fun memories. Yeah, I'll keep you keep you updated. Is that uh, was it Bioware? That's right, Bioware. Yep. 
And they are the same company that did KOTOR, right? I don't know. I'm going to say yes because uh, it's more interesting an answer than no <laughs> when you don't know. <laughs> right. So they're, they're also, I'm trying to remember, they're also Dragon Age, right? Uh, I don't know. I'm going to say yes again because why not? I'm so, <laughs> so glad we're doing a podcast on a topic we're experts in. All right. Now I have to figure this out. Uh, I, I believe it is. And the reason I'm asking is, uh, yes, it's Bioware. So, you know, that's the paradigm is you 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 gather a party of, you know, five out of 10 possible players. You sort of assemble a party, like an away team. Right. And combat works is if somebody dies, they're not really dead. They're just sort of, as long as one person survives to the end of combat, everyone is resuscitated. Right. So I think that paradigm, I don't know if it originated in, in Mass Effect, but it was definitely an early example of that paradigm. Right, right. Yeah, that's exactly it. So, uh, yeah, this has been the Game Audio Hour. Now, we are now officially the Game Audio Hour for this episode because it has been about an hour. Um, yes. That's right. We finally did it. Thank you, for, uh, thank you for joining us again today, Mike. And should you wish to uh, keep up to date on our uh, episodes, please uh, come join us at Twitter. Uh, our handle there is Game Audio Hour, and you can find there the uh, all the updates on our latest episodes as well as various we retweets and comments on uh, you know the positive things going on in the game audio community uh, other than that please keep an eye on all of uh, your regular podcast vendors uh, where we will be posting our next episode and until that time take care and goodbye farewell